If you were driving around LA in the summer of 2014, you might have heard this song coming from a car stereo. Cannon. It's called Where They Ride, and it's from an album called No Safety by Brandon Duncan, better known as rapper Tiny Do. He raps about dealing drugs, shooting, and getting shot. Basically about street life in LA. And that same summer, the album got him arrested. He went to jail, facing 25 to life for conspiracy to commit all kinds of crimes he rapped about. But police and prosecutors never accused him of holding a gun in real life or having anything to do with the string of murders they were investigating. But they didn't need to, because California law made it surprisingly easy to go after him for just profiting off of criminal activity, which is what they said he did in his music. Duncan spent seven months in jail before a judge dropped the charges against him. Stories like his are part of what's inspired a new bill in New York that would make it a lot harder for prosecutors to use rap lyrics against rappers in court. And some big names are backing it. Jay-Z, Meek Mill, Killer Mike, and Kelly Rowland, among others. If you're a gangster rapper, you know, you get credibility by talking that talk, right? Yo, I'm outside, I'm, I'm laying inwards down, I'm in the street. You know, that's what you, you get credit for that. Jay Christopher Hamilton is an entertainment attorney and professor at Syracuse University. The ironic thing is that kind of language also is very relevant for a prosecutor to prove intent. You out here laying in words down, making money in the street, chopping up bricks. It's an irony that you're giving them exactly what they want to put you in prison. Welcome to Pop Cultured. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, we're looking at why rap and hip-hop get put on trial way more than other music and how that might be changing. The Rap Music on Trial bill actually aims to protect all forms of artistic expression from being used in courts. But there is a reason why it focuses on hip-hop in particular. Rappers oftentimes are stigmatized by the music they create, right? Because a number of rappers live the life and quote-unquote rap about it. Now, in theory, there shouldn't be any issue with that, right? Because you have two different things happening. You have the street life and then you have entertainment. But when it comes to rap, the criminal justice system hasn't always done a good job of distinguishing between real crimes and entertainment. Rappers talk about the neighborhoods they live in and situations they see or hear about. And a lot of times, they take on personas and talk about these things in the first person. Sometimes it's from their personal experiences, and sometimes it's just observations. But rap lyrics have been used as evidence and as a basis for investigation in cases against everyone from Snoop Dogg to Bobby Schmurter to a lot of other rappers you've probably never heard of. But rappers aren't the only artists who depict violence and drugs in their music. Violent lyrics show up in rock and roll songs, the blues, and country. When Carrie Underwood said she took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, it didn't prompt the police to open an investigation for property damage. But when it comes to hip-hop, there have been investigations that were at least in part prompted by something a rapper said on a song. Like the case of Antoine Stewart in Newport News, Virginia. In 2013, Stewart was charged with a double murder that had happened six years before. The thing that tipped off authorities about Stewart was a rap he'd written that was going viral in his hometown. 
In the song, Stewart references a murder, but the details didn't really line up with the double murder he was being investigated for. But that didn't stop the police from using those lyrics as evidence of a confession and charging Stewart with the murders. Ultimately, the lyrics weren't the focus of the trial, and Stewart was found not guilty of murder. He was convicted on a weapons charge. But the whole reason authorities even suspected him is because of lyrics he performed. It's hard to say that this has never happened with country music or other genres. But we do know there are a lot of examples of violent lyrics that describe murders that show up in blues, folk, rock and roll, and country music. There's even a style of song that's very old called the murder ballad. And murder ballads are pretty popular in country and folk music. There are some classic examples like Johnny Cash's I Shot a Man in Reno. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. The protagonist in Waylon Jennings' Cedartown, GA, plotted the murder of his cheating wife. Made up my mind what I'm gonna do. East in the pawn shop and bought a 22. Willie Nelson has a whole album about a murderer, Redheaded Stranger. The songs aren't written in first person, but they're pretty violent. And it's revealed that the protagonist more than likely killed his wife and her lover. And they die with their smiles on their faces. Cody Johnson has a more recent song called Guilty As Can Be, in which the protagonist confesses to killing his wife's side piece. And it's not just the men. Women in country and folk music have flipped the murder ballot to kill cheating and abusive husbands, like Miranda Lambert's Gunpowder and Lead. And in the barnyard, Rachel Brooks sings about killing her best friend in front of her husband because she suspected the two were having an affair. It must have been her cries that opened his eyes as he realized it was in a dream. It was that one final blow with her breath so slow she didn't There are so many examples of murder ballads throughout country, blues, folk, and rock and roll. But rarely do you see those artists being investigated as criminals. Most people understand that the lyrics are just for entertainment, even if they seem to justify violence against women or murder as a solution to a cheating spouse. But when it comes to hip-hop, because so much of it is based on the credibility of the rapper themselves, People, especially prosecutors, have had a hard time distinguishing between lyrics as art and lyrics as evidence. The ACLU found that 80% of the criminal cases between 2006 and 2013 that involved rap furs and rap lyrics, rap lyrics were used in those trials. So this is not something that's happening every now and then. It's not something that's happening on occasion. This is something that is a tool of prosecutors and law enforcement to, quote-unquote, lock up criminals that are rappers opposing as rappers. Before we get into individual cases or what the rap music on trial bill is proposing, 
we need to go back and understand how rap and hip-hop as a genre has been criminalized since the early days of the art form. Today, we have trap music, but back in the late 80s, there was gangster rap. Made popular by West Coast rappers like Ice-T, N.W.A., Snoop Dogg, and Tupac. And almost from the beginning, gangster rap sparked moral panic from politicians and community leaders who were largely outside of the culture. Cop Killer is a song Ice-T recorded with his rock band Body Count. The song was technically a metal song, but because Ice-T was known as a rapper, it's often referred to as a rap song. Government officials spoke out against the song, and authorities in Florida even wanted to charge Ice-T with treason. N.W.A.'s F the Police is probably one of the most recognizable modern protest songs. And it's also one of the most infamous from the gangster rap era. The FBI sent N.W.A. a strongly worded letter in response to the song. And in 1989, members of the group were actually arrested in Detroit for performing the song. By the early 90s, there were full-on protests and campaigns against gangster rap led largely by Black community leaders who felt the music was violent and painted Black folks in stereotypical ways and disrespected women. One of the most vocal anti-gangster rap activists was C. Dolores Tucker. I am here to put the nation on notice that violence perpetuated against women through the music industry in the forms of gangster rap and misogynist lyrics will not be tolerated any longer. Tucker had been a prominent activist in the civil rights movement in the 60s and served as Secretary of State in Pennsylvania in the 70s. But by the 90s, she turned her focus to gangster rap and calling rappers out by name. And that includes all this gangster rap and misogynist lyrics. Music that glorifies and promotes violence with guns, knives, or drugs, and denigrates and defames women. And with the release of Snoop Doggy Dog's debut album, Doggy Style, (laughs) that includes artwork that is nothing but pornographic smut available to any child. And in turn, the rappers also called her out. Tucker led protests against gangster rap and most notably argued that it wasn't free speech or artistic expression. Obscenity has long been an exception to free speech. If the filth that is portrayed in these gangster rap videos and art is not obscene, then I submit that nothing is obscene. And there were a lot of other protests in which people from both sides of the argument showed up. We will not stand for the vile, ugly, low, crime, abusive, and rough music. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And music is not the killer. It's not the ill. The ill is the streets that we are forced to live like rats on. The ill is the projects we are forced to live in. I live here where I see babies having babies. I see pregnant mothers using drugs. And this is what I talk about. In 1994, the Senate held a hearing led by Senator Carol Mosley Braun to determine whether gangster rap was sparking violence or just a reflection of what was happening in the neighborhoods it came from. Are you seriously suggesting that the vulgar lyrics in gangster rap, or whatever you want to call it, plays no part at all in the further disintegration of morals and ethics in our society? And somebody in the first panel mentioned, you know, whether we were talking about a chicken-eggs approach. What is your response to that? 
I'm not saying it doesn't have any bearings on the problems in our society, but it appears as though a finger is being pointed at. And that question, whether rap and rappers are the problem or just a symptom of the problem, is the basis for how rap went from being something that was scrutinized to something that was used against rappers personally. Remember, Snoop Dogg was one of the rappers who was called out by activists like C. Dolores Tucker. Well, in 1993, Snoop and one of his bodyguards were charged with the murder of a rival gang member. Snoop's bodyguard pulled the trigger and claimed it was self-defense. But in the trial... They used his lyrics in his trial to try to convict him. In the case, prosecutors didn't use lyrics as evidence of a confession. But they did play Snoop's song, Murder Was the Case, in which he raps about being convicted of murder during the closing arguments. He beat the case because he had expensive lawyers and a really solid defense. My point is, his lifestyle and what he rapped about, his brand was being used, and it's always going to be used to, quote-unquote, enslave us in the criminal justice system. That's what that's the game. And lyrics aren't just used during trials. As we heard with the Antoine Stewart case, rap lyrics often factor in way before a defendant even sees a courtroom. It's not just about prosecutors prosecuting rappers in criminal court using their lyrics. These lyrics are used all the time outside of court as the basis for arrest warrants, as the basis for investigations, as basis for all types of things before you even get to court. And there's a number of examples where this has happened with notable people in music. Young Dolph, Baby Rest in Peace, they use Dolph's bulletproof mixtape, the lyrics from the mixtape, as a basis for a warrant to arrest Black youngster. Young Dolph is a Memphis rapper who died last year. Before his death, he had an ongoing beef with another Memphis rapper, Black Youngster. In 2017, after a show in Charlotte, Dolph's SUV was shot at over 100 times. He survived the attack and suspected Black Youngster of being behind it. And he alluded to as much on his mixtape, Bulletproof. How the fuck you miss a whole hundred shots? An arrest warrant was issued for Black Youngster in connection to the shooting. And his lawyer said the warrant mentioned the Bulletproof mixtape is one of the bases for arrest. Another prominent case that used the rapper's lyrics or image against him, Takashi 69 You may recall Takashi 69s situation with the gang set he was a part of. I think it was a blood set. In the, the authorities' attempt to convict this blood set, they're using music videos and the antics of the uh, gang members in the videos as a means to convict them in court. In that case, Takashi had become affiliated with the Nine Trey Gangsters, and his lyrics were used to put pressure on him to turn state's witness against members of the organization. You may know Boozy was in, on trial for murder. Little Boozy, we all know Little Boozy, Baton Rouge. He, in his trial, the authorities were using raps that he created around the time of the death of someone they were trying to put on him as him, him um, ordering the hit on. They were using his lyrics that he recorded around the time this man being killed as a means to, again, convict him of uh, the crime that he was being um, charged with. In Lil Boosie's case, he was charged with ordering and paying for the murder of someone. And during the trial, the prosecution mentioned lyrics of his that used the terms 187, Merc, and Kate. Words that mean money and murder. Now, those are a few examples of how rap lyrics are used against famous rappers. But most of the time, prosecutors and investigators use lyrics against small-time rappers, like in the 2014 case, New Jersey versus Vontae Skinner. 
In that case, the defendant was a rapper and low-level drug dealer who was charged with the attempted murder of another drug dealer. During his trial, prosecutors had a police officer take the stand and read aloud 13 pages of Skinner's lyrics. The lyrics were violent and depicted gang life, but they didn't mention or reference the crime he was being charged with. And they were written before the crime even took place. Skinner was convicted of attempted murder, but on appeal, the Supreme Court of New Jersey overturned the ruling, saying the reading of the lyrics had unfairly prejudiced the jury against him. Here's what the judge said in that ruling. We hold that violent and profane and disturbing rap lyrics that defendant wrote constituted highly prejudicial evidence against him that bore little to no probative value, meaning it wasn't really relevant, so bore little to no probative value on any motive or intent. So they incorporated this music. It was irrelevant to his motive or intent behind the attempted murder offense which he was charged. Less prejudicial evidence was available by the state on both motive and intent. So basically, the state could have done something other than use his music. The mission of the defendant's rap writings, right, he wrote a, a little rap book, for a high likelihood of poisoning the jury against the defendant, notwithstanding the trial court's limiting instruction. So again, this is a situation where the court, in a positive outcome, said, hey, you incorporated something that was going to prejudice the defendant. You could have used evidence other than his rap music, but you didn't. We're going to overturn the the judgment and, and throw it out. The judge also added this anecdote. One cannot presume that simply because an author has chosen to write about a certain topic, he or she has acted in accordance with those views. The court noted that no one believes that Bob Marley actually shot the sheriff or that there's a man buried in Edgar Allan Poe's floorboards. Again, my little footnote with this, I just think it's important for context here. Yeah. However, if Bob Marley was known to be a mass murderer, we might think he, he did it. Or if Edgar Allan Poe was known to be a serial killer, then yeah, maybe we want to, you know, use those lyrics. So again, I think context is important. As it stands now, rap lyrics are supposed to be protected by the First Amendment. And there's also a standard of evidence that in theory should protect a defendant. But that's not what always happens. When it comes to a criminal trial and you're incorporating evidence in a criminal trial, the evidence has to be relevant, obviously, probative, that's the, the key term, but you can introduce evidence of a person's bad acts as a means of making an argument that they did it again. So, for example, this person is a loser or low life, doesn't pay their bills on time, just has a bad reputation. And I want to show all of those things and incorporate all that into this trial to prove they did this crime. That's wrong. You can't do that. You can incorporate things that speak to the intent and the motive. But what's, what's happening is the rap lyrics are being used on, on the one hand, in theory, to connect with intent and motive. But the reality is they're really using it as behavior that would make the jury believe this person did this crime because they're selling drugs. The rap music on trial, Bill, aims to make that harder for prosecutors to do. When it comes to rap lyrics based on this legislation, what they're trying to implement is there's a presumption of inadmissibility, meaning automatically out the gate, the music is not allowed based on what the legislation is proposing. With the new legislation, prosecutors would have to demonstrate that there's a clear and direct connection between the lyrics and the case before they could even introduce the lyrics as evidence. Now, 
the prosecution has to prove affirmatively that if they're going to use rap lyrics, that the lyrics are literal, right? It is literally describing a criminal act. And then it has to show that there's a nexus, meaning a connection between the lyrics and the actual criminality. So for example, I'm a rapper and I rapped about, yo, I shot him in the head last night, my, my 45 Magnum. And then I'm being prosecuted for shooting someone in the head last night with a 45 Magnum. Clearly there's a nexus between the lyrics. There's a likelihood that they can prove that I'm being literal in my description of what happened. So that would be the standard under which the lyrics could be used based on this new legislation. So prosecutors could no longer use lyrics that talk about violence, selling drugs, or gang life generally to prove a rapper's character or intent on a specific crime. The lyrics have to explicitly link to the crime in question. Now, that's a very, very high standard. I mean, proving someone is being literal, obviously, is, a, is quite a, a, a feat to try to accomplish, as well as drawing a nexus between what is being said in the lyrics and what actually happened. There's another thing the lyrics have to prove under this new legislation. There's also an expectation that the lyrics have probative value. That means the lyrics, as evidence, have to be relevant and influential in making the case that the crime took place. So just because someone raps about committing a crime and the crime happens, under this legislation, you would have to prove that they're rapping about that specific crime in particular. Another thing the bill wants to change is the prosecution's ability to prejudice the jury against the defendant. Under this new bill, prosecutors would have to get a judge's sign-off before they could play or recite lyrics in court. The lyrics have to be disclosed outside the earshot of the jury, meaning the jurors can't hear this music. This has to be in closed session with the judge and the prosecutors. So not to taint the, the jury's perception, obviously, uh, of what whether this person was uh, guilty of the crime. So all of those things are, are, are really high standards when it comes to criminal justice. Proponents of the bill say it's needed because hip-hop lyrics are disproportionately used against rappers who are often Black and Latino. And the bill is a big deal for that because it could potentially establish a new really high bar that prosecutors have to clear before they could even use rap lyrics in a trial. Prosecutors have been grossly discriminated against defendants by claiming there's a valid nexus between the speech sought to be incorporated into evidence and the crime alleged. But they're abusing it because it's, they haven't been establishing their nexus appropriately. So the bill is looking to really add some teeth. But I think the biggest piece of the, the takeaway from this bill that I think is really important because it really is the high, the, the high standard that the bill is trying to set is Remember, it is presumed inadmissible. That's the biggest piece. But for some people, that presumed inadmissibility for all rap lyrics is the issue. Because some cases aren't as clear-cut as the ones we've mentioned. Like the case of Montague versus the state of Maryland. In that case, the defendant, Lawrence Montague, was charged with the murder of a man who attempted to buy cocaine from him with a counterfeit bill. He leaves the scene, but later gets arrested. Now, while he's in prison... He says, well, let me get on uh, the phone and rap about snitching and things I'm going to do to snitches on social media live. Montague recorded a verse from the jail phone that was later uploaded to Instagram. In the rap, he talks about shooting someone, references a 40 caliber gun, the same kind of gun that was used in the crime, 
and threatened to kill any snitches. There was one witness who claimed to have seen the murder. Ultimately, prosecutors used the Instagram rap in the trial, and Montague was convicted of second-degree murder. His lawyers tried to appeal the decision, saying the lyrics prejudiced the jury against Montague, but the Maryland Court of Appeals sided with the original conviction and ruled that, in this case, rap lyrics can be used as evidence. Critics of the decision said the ruling was racist and set a dangerous precedent. But for lawyer and longtime fan J. Christopher Hamilton, it's complicated. I have a personal connection to this world because, look, I'm a, con- I'm a consumer of hip-hop music. I grew up on, quote-unquote, gangster rap, and, um, and I still listen to the music today. I, I, I'm very connected to it, not just from a, an academic or legal standpoint, but from a personal interest standpoint. The thing is this, if you are in the street committing crime and then rapping about it, I don't know if I have a lot of um, concern or, or, or compassion for you because you're clearly a bad criminal, one, number one, and number two, you're not using any kind of proper judgment if you're telling people what you're doing in your music. And on top of that, you were danger to society. I don't want to live next door to you. I don't want to stop at the gas station and be next to you. So, so, so that's a dynamic. I don't want to just kind of brush all criminal, um, all potential defendants and rappers who are industries and doing drugs and, I mean, selling drugs and shooting people as being people that we need to protect. But I do want to protect the individuals that are, quote unquote, just rapping about it because they used to do it or rapping about it because they aspire to do it. And I think that's what Jay-Z and these others are trying to do. They're trying to protect, quote unquote, the innocent and not use um, this as a way to get away with doing more dirt in the street. Right now, the rap music on trial bill still needs to be passed by the New York State Assembly and signed off by the governor of New York. But Jay Christopher thinks it probably won't pass as is, which to him could be a good thing. I think the the language in the bill is going to end up being modified, they're gonna, you know, debate and discuss and there'll be changes to it. But I think more importantly than the bill right now is the discussion we're having about the need for some type of new legal precedent to prevent the exploitation of rappers' music in their criminal trial. But the 2000s are kind of having a comeback. So my daughter's into what's now called indie, but I call it like the 2000s vintage clothes. So it's a great time for me because like I had the vintage clothing then and whatever I saved is even more vintage now. Christina Milian was one of the 2000s it girls. She was in Love Don't Cost a Thing with Nick Cannon, Be Cool with John Travolta, and she had several hits, including Dip It Love. So... She's exactly the person we wanted to talk to about the return of the aughts style. Now, we'll set aside the indignity of having your kid and all their friends calling the styles you made famous vintage. Thanks for making us all feel old, Christina Milian's daughter. There are some other things she's happy to see coming back, though. Lip gloss. I don't think I've ever gotten off the craze of lip gloss. I see people more often kind of just like, you know, enhancing their own look with like a glossy like lip. And it's like the thing now. But there are some things that can definitely stay in the past. Now, I would not bring back 
thin eyebrows. I'm perfectly fine with keeping the thick brows that we have right now. For sure. I mean, and that one, I saw a tweet that was like, everyone who's gone and got microbladed or done some other thing to like get thick eyebrows again, what are we going to do when thin eyebrows come back? And I'm like, pray this day never comes. (laughs) Oh, I hope not. I know it's funny because back in the 2000s, my mom always used to tell me like, don't let anybody pluck your eyebrows. And then when I was like doing music videos and stuff, one makeup artist would be like, let me just do a little. And like, I would go back and look in the mirror afterwards and my brows were so thin. So yeah, I won't be making that mistake again. I always intended to have thick brows, even when it was in to have thin brows. (laughs) And since Christina Milian's gorgeous blind you smile is one of the things that makes her so recognizable, maybe it's no surprise that we caught up with her while she was promoting a really important campaign with Crest and Oral-B. And it's all about closing what's called the smile gap. I found out that Black and Hispanic kids, it's two to four times more likely to have issues with the upkeep of actually having a healthy smile. They're getting together with organizations to be able to help with not only the education, but providing the tools and also helping finance it. Going to a dentist, they can go get cleanings often. I think this is such an amazing campaign because things that I can relate to within my family Both my mom and my dad, they were both immigrants of Cuba and they weren't able to have oral health care and the knowledge of things that they actually were able to display to us later on. So through time, my mom had a lot of issues, cavities to root canals to just pain. And she and my dad just really did a really good job with my sisters and I because of, you know, their own experience of making sure that we didn't have to deal with the same things. Your smile is everything. You're defined by your smile in a lot of ways. We love it. And you know what else we also love? Gonna do a game of this or that. Velour suits or all denim everything. All denim everything. I still do all denim everything. Velour is cute, but it always reminds me of like watching The Sopranos. So I'm gonna go with all denim everything. You know, it reminds me of the scene in Love Don't Cost a Thing when you like, when you give Nick Cannon a makeover, he ends up in like a velour suit. Yeah, I swear to you, I thought about that Sean John velour suit just right now when I was talking. So yes, nah, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) Good on those. Okay, good on those. Okay. Low rise jeans or trucker hats? Ooh, oh no, low rise jeans. (laughs) Okay. I know it's kind of tacky, but trucker hats just never fit me right. They were cute and all, and I know everyone can wear them, but I prefer dad hats over trucker hats. So the low-rise jean, for me, because I'm short, it actually works out and makes me look taller. (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. Okay, this next one's funny. I'll tell you after you guess. Capri pants or visible thongs? Oh, no. That's terrible. Both of them are terrible. Can I tell you something? What? When yes. we look, when we were looking up, what are some trends? Oh yes, you know I have, I have the visible. You thong. were the picture for both for free pants and in style invisible thongs. Girl, I was a post, I was a poster child for both of them. Absolutely. I see. The thing is, I'm really not a fan of capri pants at all, and I think that the visible thong is so tacky. When I think about it now, I can't believe I did it, but it's so funny. But I guess I'm just gonna have to go with the capri pants. It's so. Oh gosh. I don't want to see either one. <laughs> you heard it here. Even though Christina, on the internet, it may seem like Christina Milian oh. likes Capri Pants and Visible Thongs, but she does not want to no. know at all. Once upon a time, let it go, let it go. <laughs> let it go. Okay. Buffy or Dawson's Creek? I'll go Buffy. I'll go with Buffy. She was edgy and I, I like edgy girls. Okay. <laughs> one-on-one or half and half? Ooh, uh, you know what? 
I'll go half on half. Okay. Yeah. Um, the mall or movie theaters. Rest in peace to both. I feel like the pandemic Aww. really ended that. <laughs> so sad. I still do both. You know what? The mall is not dead and neither is the movie theater. I still do both. And I think for me, I'll, I'll go with the mall because I think the mall, like that's where I used to do all my hanging out. Of course you shop and stuff, but most of my teen, teen years was spent walking up and down a mall to meet people. <laughs> And it was like the only time your mom would like drop you off because she was shopping and you could hang out with your friends. So we'll go with the mall. Keep the mall. For sure. That was like also like, I'm a real teenager when your mom lets you like walk around with just yes. your friends. Yes. Such a rite of passage that I feel right? like I wish kids had these days, you know? Right. right? Two more. MySpace yes. or Black Planet? Oh, darn. I would go with MySpace because MySpace for me was more legit. I had so many fake versions of me on Black Planet. People actually really thought that they were dating me or talking to me. Like I met so many guys that were like, I I talked to you on Black Planet. So see, they needed a better way of verifying who exactly was talking on Black Planet compared to for me, I have, you know, the verification sign on, on MySpace. Plus I had the music and all that other stuff. I even signed a deal with MySpace back in the days. And for those of you men who thought you were talking to me on Black Planet, it wasn't me. <laughs> That's hilarious. You were catfish before catfish. Somebody catfished as me. Yes. Black Planet, um, actually, is still around. Uh, okay. This day, you can make a Black Planet page. I heard that a couple years ago. Actually, like Karuchi and my friend Joey and them, they were all just like laughing and just talking about their days on Black Planet. So we were just all joking about that. You know, I have a show idea. I'm like, we should meet, people should meet <laughs> the fake versions of Christina Milian oh who catfished them back <laughs> in the day. Like reunite people and see if there are any I'm sparks nervous. I'm a little nervous about it. Hosted by you. <laughs> I'm really nervous about who those people were. <laughs> I am too. I'm a little nervous too. Let's hope they were harmless teenagers because we were teenagers back then. Okay. And the last one, um, Mean Girls or Bring It On? Oh, man. Bring It On. <laughs> bring It On. I mean, there's obvious reasons because I was in a Bring It On movie. <laughs> so Bring It On, Fight to the Finish was me. But I do think that Mean Girls has a lot of quotable moments in that movie. But yeah, I'm going to bring it on, girl. <laughs> mean Girls was a great movie. Bring It On is a great franchise. I agree with that. Yes. Glad that we set the bar for like the you know the beginning of the millennium, um, and it's nice to kind of revisit it. And that's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show, and I work with a superstar team every week. The show's producer is Alicia Key. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Our senior director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Big thanks to J. Christopher Hamilton and Christina Millian for talking to me. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. <laughs>